to um, the book of Philippians chapter 2. Sunday mornings we're studying the book of uh, Philippians together. We find ourselves in chapter 2 and as we're making our way there, uh, just a reminder that on Sunday nights we go through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and uh, even during the football playoffs, and uh, we'll be doing that tonight in the Gospel according to John uh, at 6 o'clock this evening, and each of you are uh, invited. We pick things up in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Paul writes by the Holy Spirit, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, uh, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become, <clears throat> excuse me, blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world." holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. And yes, I am, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on uh, the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word as always. There's nothing like it in all of the world. Nobody says the things that you do. Nobody possesses your wisdom, your clarity, and your love. And we thank you for the privilege of turning to it today. And we pray that you would give us a corresponding work of your Holy Spirit to open it up to us and to teach us about your ways and the glory and the beauty of who you are and the salvation that you have provided to us and the Savior who has made all of it possible. Give us ears to hear what your Spirit would speak to us as a church corporately and then to each one of us individually this morning. As only you can do, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The Apostle Paul begins verse 12 with the word therefore. And uh, Paul, as he uses that word to start the verse, he's communicating that he is in the middle of a thought progression. And in fact, he is at this point in chapter 2, he is concluding a thought progression that he has begun uh, much earlier uh, in the book. You might notice that he begins uh, verse 1 with the word therefore and uh, and verse 9 and verse 12 here in, in uh, chapter 2, all of them start with a therefore. And this is one of the reasons why in studying any of the writings of the Apostle Paul, it requires a little bit of concentration because he is always building to some kind of a point and then making invaluable points while he's uh, uh, on his way to that major point. And it's interesting, those of you who are familiar with his letter to the church at Ephesus, um, he gets so excited by the Holy Spirit that the entire first chapter is one sentence. He just keeps going on and on with all of these wonderful things as he describes uh, who we are in Christ Jesus. And this is the way that he is. 
The thought progression here began with his call to us in chapter 1, verse 27, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. After that, he instructed us in terms of how to handle uh, opposition and persecution that comes against the church and against Christians from without, from the world. And then uh, in chapters, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, he instructed us regarding how to uh, handle the, uh, the internal conflicts that can occur within a local church. And after which, in, as we saw last week in verses 5 through 11, uh, he called us to make none other than Jesus himself our example in uh, doing all of these things. And then here Paul calls on us to work out our own salvation with uh, fear and trembling. Paul is being very, very direct in this uh, letter that he writes to the church at Philippi concerning a conflict that is occurring within the church. And, uh, and he can imagine as the letter would be delivered to the church, uh, remember, they didn't have all of the letters put together in a Bible that they brought to church. The letter, this letter to the church at Philippi would have probably been delivered and then read to the entire church on, say, a Sunday evening uh, service. And Paul knew that those who would hear that letter, read this letter read publicly, and they're on the wrong side of what it is that he's saying here, uh, that would have probably were going to feel great conviction over it, and thus he affirms uh, his love for them with the words, "My beloved." He wanted uh, his influence in the situation to be redemptive. He didn't want them to somehow uh, think that because he was having to correct some things there, that they were um, in some kind of a spiritual doghouse in his. Uh, mind and sometimes people can think that when uh, we, when a correction has to occur, uh, they're worried that we will think about them in that way for the rest of our lives and for the rest of their lives. And of course, we don't. And Paul wanted to reassure them of that as well. He expressed his confidence that they would be uh, as obedient to his instruction that he's given them by way of letter as they were to his instruction when he was there founding the church and, and, uh, and, and spending its, uh, his time there for its development. And so he remembered their eagerness to obey God, whatever God called them to do in the past, and he reassured them that he wasn't doubting that, com uh, his, uh, 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 that at all. He was uh, equally confident that uh, they would receive this instruction and obey with the same uh, same kind of eagerness that they always possessed. He said in verse 12, and formally here, with work out your own salvation with fear and tremble, trembling, he says, work out your own salvation. Now, it's always an alarming phrase to many people when they read the book of Philippians, especially the first or second or the first time we read it as a, as a new Christian, and it's important to understand what it's not saying. It's important to notice that Paul didn't write here, work for your own salvation. He said, work out your own salvation. Uh, what this does not communicate is that because uh, it doesn't communicate that we're to work for our own salvation because no one can work for their salvation. Not all of the human effort in the world uh, could ever earn by 
by that effort, the salvation that we've received in Christ, and that's why God made it a gift. Paul himself wrote to the church at Ephesus, for by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourself, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Additionally, Paul here, he writes to them about their own salvation. Work out your own salvation. He recognized that he's writing to a group of Christians who already possess salvation, their own salvation. And as he begins the letter at the very beginning, he clearly identifies them, uh, the letter as being written to Christians. What it does communicate is that word work out in in the original language, it means to work at achieving. That is, having been saved, we are to strongly endeavor to grow in the Christian life and experience its fullness. The Greek word that Paul uses here is emphatic. It means to labor at, to engage in an activity involving considerable expenditure of effort. The Greek word uh, was used in uh, ancient Rome by her writers to describe the working of a silver mine with the goal of extracting every bit of silver that could be found in that mine, to exhaust it uh, of that silver, and that we are to engage in a similar measure to make our own all of the fullness uh, uh, of the riches uh, that, uh, the, that God has provided to us in our salvation and the salvation that he has deposited in each one of us. And so it raises the question in our hearts this morning and in the privacy of our hearts, does this mark my Christian life this morning? Am I still growing as a Christian in the depth, in the beauty, in the riches, in the exploration of the greatness and the beauty and the majesty of the salvation that Christ has provided to us and has brought into our very lives? Or am I drifting spiritually? Have I ceased to grow? Have I become uh, lukewarm? And the point that Paul is making is that no Christian would ever want to be found viewing or treating the richness of this salvation in a lesser way than mere mortals and Romans viewed silver in a silver mine. And it's very convicting, and it's very enlightening, and and it's very, very important uh, to allow it to have its full impact in our lives. And he is saying that if we have uh, that kind of a view, such a low view of Christianity, then to repent of that and to return to growing as a Christian in all areas of of our life, the fullness of the life that we've been saved into. Now, the Apostle Paul is many things, and one of the things he is is he's always practical. And so the Apostle Paul, he instructs us here uh, as to the means by which this occurs in our lives. And it's very, very simple. This exploration of the beauty of this Christian life, that it occurs through the surrender of our life uh, to God and His purposes for our lives, and then through obedience to God's Word and to the example of, of Christ. And throughout this section of Philippians, Paul is building on the subject 
of obedience. You notice he, in verse uh, 12, Paul uses the word obeyed there uh, in his call uh, upon us to obey Jesus' example in obeying God the Father's will and plans for our lives at whatever the personal cost. He speaks of that obedience of Jesus there in verse 8. And, and what he's communicating something is very beautiful and very, very simple, and that is that the beauty and the depth and the richness of the Christian life is worked out in our lives through the obedience to God's commandments. And I think it is a wonderful way to look at obedience in our lives as Christians, that every act of obedience takes us into a deeper exploration of this Christian life. It takes us deeper into this Christian life than what we had uh, even experienced up to the point of, of that, uh, that obedience. And it's a wonderful way to look at obedience. It is taking me deeper into the beauty uh, of, of this Christian life. He tells us that we are uh, to do this, work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. And so, um, if work out your own salvation, our own salvation didn't get our attention, then this is certainly going to get our attention when he tells us to do it with fear uh, and trembling. This isn't speaking about a fear and trembling over losing my salvation as a Christian. Uh, Paul is not in any way casting doubt upon, upon their salvation. It is a fear and a trembling uh, uh, of uh, the, the very thought of living my Christian life short of what Christ, at enormous expense to himself, has provided to me. That it, and this fear and trembling that should accompany any idea that I can casually choose what commandments I'll obey or not obey, what examples of Christ I will obey or I will disregard, uh, or to casually misrepresent Christianity or misrepresent God uh, in this way before the world. Paul says that we are to literally shudder at even the thought of such a life, uh, much left to be uh, living such uh, a life. But Paul doesn't stop there. He notice the very first word in verse 13 is the word for. So he continues his thought progression here and he tells us, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. It is God who works in you. Here he's communicating that first by virtue of our spiritual birth, God Almighty in the person of the Holy Spirit has entered into our lives. That's what being born again is. We've all been born physically one time, but in order to have a relationship with God, we need a spiritual birth to be born again. And to be born again, as Jesus spoke about that, is a spiritual birth that occurs when I put my faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins. I give my life to God. The Holy Spirit comes into my life now, and now I have a, a spiritual dimension to my life. I'm indwelt by the Holy Spirit. This also tells us that the Holy Spirit doesn't come into our lives as just kind of an idle presence or as an idle influence, but that he is active. And so it raises the question, how is he active in our lives? 
And then Paul answers by declaring both to will and to do his good pleasure. And here Paul informs us that all of this obedience and godly fear that he's been writing about are not something that we are meant to achieve in our own lives through our own self-motivation or by means of our own uh, natural strength and ability, but that God supplies us with both of those in the Christian life. He provides us with a will, a desire to obey God, and then he uh, supplements that then with the power to be able to fulfill that desire. He provides us with the desire to obey God and then the power to obey God and his word. And you think about how wise God is. He's covered all of the bases here. It would do us very, very little good if God provided us with the will to live the Christian life, but not the power. Or to provide us with the power to live the Christian life, but not the will and the desire to do so. And here he has supplied us with uh, both. And, and it teaches us that the fullness, the, the greatness of the Christian life is not beyond the reach of a single Christian. There is so much in life that lies beyond the, the reach of us all depending upon our intellect, or depending upon our athletic abilities, or depending upon the privileges that we have uh, in life, or where we're born on the face of this planet. And there's all of these limiting factors that occur in life. But in the spiritual birth, when a person is born again anywhere on the face of this earth, The same will to do and power to do of God's good pleasure is brought into the life of that Christian, and every one of us has equal opportunity to explore and enjoy the fullness of the Christian life. We are not limited in any way by anything physical related to us. And this is, in supplying both of these things to us, It's an immense blessing, of course, but it's also an immense responsibility because it removes the lack of these things, uh, using the lack of these things uh, as an excuse for living a, a subpar Christian life. I think it is wonderful to think about the desire to obey God's commandments that he brought into our lives when we became Christians a desire to read his word, a desire to obey his word, a desire to know him, a desire for all of these things that he brought into our uh, lives, that God supplies us with a desire to live the Christian life, and he supplies us with a desire to live the Christian life that is every bit as great and even greater than any desire we have for the flesh or any desire that we have for sin. And he brings that into our lives. And this is one of the reasons why, if you're not a Christian yet, you must never hesitate uh, at becoming a Christian because you look at it uh, from the outside and you think, I would never be able to live such a life. Uh, The the addiction to my sin is is too uh, great. I am too weak. I I have failed in every New Year's resolution I've ever made in my whole life. How in the world... Could I live this life? But when you become a Christian, 
God Almighty will come into your life by the Holy Spirit and he'll give you the motive to live it and then he'll give you the power to live it as well. Everything can change for you. You will come under completely new uh, management, the management of the Holy Spirit. So in verses 12 and 13, we have both the divine enablement in the Christian life represented and then the human responsibility represented. And so, yes, we're called to obey God and work out our own salvation, uh, but God supplies us with the desire and the power to do so. Uh, God supplies them uh, to us, but it isn't uh, let go and let God. Our part is to recognize the desire that he's put within us, the power that he has put within us, and then to act upon those things. Now, one of the, as we look at the theme of joy a little bit here, and as we're going through this epistle, one of the keys to joy in the Christian life is it, it, it comes with a, a clear understanding of what our part is individually in our Christian growth and sanctification and what is God's part in our Christian growth and sanctification. And if we mix those roles up, then we are not only not going to know joy, but all we're going to know is condemnation and frustration. I remember being a new Christian back in uh, 1980, and I had just committed my life to the Lord. But initially, in, in the youngness of my Christian life, I viewed the Bible as a book of commands that God has given to us that we are now to obey in our own strength. And I tried, and I tried, and I tried. And I remember one day, sunny afternoon, I was working for the phone company as a cable splicer, and I was connecting wires at a B-box at Old Sonoma Road and Congress Valley Road. This is the level of the impact that this event had. And there I am connecting wires in that, that B-box, and, and I prayed to the Lord, and I said, Lord, I'm going to need to start enjoying this Christian life or I'm afraid I'm not going to make it. And then, because it doesn't matter how committed you might be as a Christian to live the Christian life as it's described in, in the Scriptures, it can't be done in our own strength. And when I prayed that to the Lord, I heard the Lord and it, it just speak to my heart. And it doesn't it happen all the time. And he just spoke to my heart as clear as a bell, and he said, I always intended that you would. And then he took me by the hand, and he began to teach me the truth of verses 12 and 13, concerning what is my part and his part in the Christian life, and specifically concerning the person and the work of the Holy Spirit in empowering us to live the Christian life. What Jesus called in Acts chapter 1, the baptism with the Holy Spirit. The power to be a witness uh, of Jesus, to Jesus, in Jerusalem, Judea, uh, Samaria, the uttermost parts uh, of the earth. In other words, it's the power to live the Christian life in all of the demands, in all of the diversity of every square inch of this planet. All of the obstacles to living the Christian life, all of the demands of living a Christian life in any environment, in the whole wide world. And in talking about the baptism with the Holy Spirit, 
Jesus is talking about the how of the Holy Spirit that is always behind the what of God's Word. The how to live the Christian life that we read about in the Bible. Let me tell you a true story to help us illustrate uh, this from my own life. Many years ago, and it was in the, in the 1980s, a friend of mine uh, came to visit me here. We were located here now and involved in, in planting this church, my wife and I and our, our daughters. And uh, he was a friend in, in th- this other city, and he came uh, to visit me. And over breakfast, he expressed that he was having difficulty try, uh, finding a church to attend in his community. And, and I knew that there were many churches in that community, and I tried to reassure him in the fact that surely there has to be one that would be right for you. Just keep, you know, just keep trying until it, it clicks for you. And, and he told me uh, that he could best illustrate his frustration by telling me the story of what was typical of what uh, he was running into. He had gone to a Sunday morning worship service the week before, And during the sermon, the pastor used a counseling session, a counseling appointment from earlier in the week as a sermon illustration. The pastor spoke to the congregation and he told of a young woman who had come to see him in her uh, mid-twenties and she'd come for counseling and she revealed that she had become pregnant while a teenager and her mother had... Uh, heavily pressured pressured her to have an abortion, uh, which she did, and then complications related to it ended up leaving her sterile. And now many, many years later, now as a Christian, she was struggling greatly, not only with the guilt of her sin there, but uh, with also with the great anger and bitterness that she felt toward her mother over all of this. Now, my friend was, was amazed that this pastor would expose so intense and so recent a counseling uh, a session in the course of a sermon, but uh, like the rest of the congregation, he was on the edge of his seat for what in the world was this pastor going to tell this young woman? What did he say? He didn't have to wait long for his curiosity to be satisfied. And the pastor told the congregation that he had told the young woman that she just had to forgive her mother because that's what the Bible says. My friend said, I almost flew out of my seat. The pastor made no mention of God providing her uh, with the will to do and the power to do uh, of this forgiveness, no mention of forgiving her mother in response to the tremendous forgiveness that God had extended to her, no mention of forgiving her mother as the only way to represent a forgiving God uh, in, in this uh, world and representing God in the situation. And I told him, I said, you've got to be mistaken here. Surely the pastor had said it, you missed it, he, or at least he tried to get there. And surely the pastor had explained to the young woman not only her responsibility to forgive, but also something of the why and the how to obey that command from God. My friend assured me that uh, everything he had told me was completely uh, accurate. What was my friend's frustration? Was the pastor wrong in what he had said? Not at all. 
What he had said was absolutely correct as far as he went. The problem is, is he didn't go far enough. And without mentioning the how of the Holy Spirit behind the what of God's word and commands, he left the woman and he left the congregation with the idea that we are to live this Christian life out uh, in our own strength and that God has revealed his will through the Bible. Now it's up to us to roll up our sleeves and, and then uh, to obey it in our own strength. And that's a very common perception of Christianity, even among many, many Christians. And all that will ever do, as I mentioned, is it will produce a very frustrated and a very condemned Christian. You say, how do you know that? Romans 7. Romans 7. And you remember that frustrated cry of the man in Romans chapter 7 as Paul illustrates him in his writing of trying to live the Christian life in the strength of his flesh. And he, and, he, and he expressed his frustration in verse 19, for the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I don't want to do, that I practice. And there isn't a Christian in the world that doesn't understand something about Romans chapter 7 and that emotion. And the source of his frustration was how to perform what is good. In verse 18, he declares, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, there dwells no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. And then finally, realizing he can't live his, this Christian life in his own strength, at the end of the chapter, he cries out for help uh, beyond himself to, to accomplish it. In verse 24, O wretched man that I am, who, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he goes on to speak of the who, who did deliver him from the Romans chapter 7 experience of trying to live this Christian life independent of God or in our own strength. And then when you move into chapter 8, what is chapter 8 all about? The person in the work of the Holy Spirit. The person in the work of the Holy Spirit. And that is the who that delivered him out of that condemnation and out of the frustration of uh, his Christian life. There's hardly anything more frustrating in life than attempting to live the Christian life as it's described in the Bible without the how of the Holy Spirit. And without knowing this, not only is it a, a great, great frustration, but uh, I'm setting myself up for a standard that is impossible to live up to, and then I won't even want to look at the Scriptures, because all I will see is the great gap that exists between the Christianity that is described there and the one that I am living. And then the, Christian, the, the Scriptures will appear to mock me in concerning that, that distance. Christianity is not the imitation of Jesus in the strength of our flesh. It is the impartation of the Holy Spirit into our lives to now live the life of Christ in us and through us. The Christian life is not imitation. 
It is impartation. Allow me to illustrate it with a well-known and I think very helpful illustration. Suppose I went to uh, uh, San Francisco for the day to get my car broken into. <laughs> but I, went to the I go to the Golden Gate Bridge. And as I go to the Golden Gate Bridge, there is this master painter sitting there. And he's got his easel. He's got his canvas. He's got his paints. And he's painting the Golden Gate Bridge and all, all, all of the surrounding beauty. And I watch him paint, and I, I marvel at the beauty that he's creating there on the canvas. And, and I want to do the same thing. So I ask him, where did he buy his easel? Where did he buy his canvas? Where did he buy his paints? And he tells me, I go and I buy them. An hour later, I'm right at his side, seated on a little stool. And every time he makes a brush stroke, I do the same thing. Every time he changes the, the color uh, of the palette, I do uh, the, the same thing. And I watch his every move and I imitate uh, everything that he does. And at the end of the day, a great crowd gathers ooing and awing over the tremendous beauty that he has captured on his canvas, while my best attempt at imitation produces only pity uh, in their hearts for me and uh, some snickers as well. And I sit down and I'm frustrated, I'm condemned at all of the hard work that I put into that painting, and I'm wondering, what will it ever take for me to paint like him? And then it dawns on me that the only way I will ever paint a painting like he painted is if he comes inside of me and paints it through me. And that's what Christianity is. And that's what the Holy Spirit does in our life. And the power of the Holy Spirit, providing us with the desire to live such a life and then the power to do so. And this baptism with the Holy Spirit, if it's something that you're not familiar with in, in terms of your exposure to it, this power to live uh, for Christ in any environment, uh, we'll have up on the homepage of our website a study that is able to go into much more depth than I'm able to do here uh, today in answering questions in and you can uh, click on it there and download it and listen for yourself. Paul then closes this section of Scripture by uh, describing what this working out will look like. Not in every Christian's life, but remember, he's writing to a church that is being uh, dominated now or beginning to be dominated by conflict. So what this working out will look like in their uh, contentious uh, circumstances he said in verse 14, do all things without complaining and disputing. That's the command. And uh, complaining in the original language means complaining. To so do all things without complaining. It has a little nuanced meaning to it. And it speaks of not only complaining that we verbalize uh, uh, openly, audibly, but then uh, complaining that we do under our breath. Disputing simply refers to arguing. And so it does seem to indicate that this dispute that was going on uh, in the church was starting to begin to boil a little bit. There was now uh, com complaining and disputing occurring. He said the, the reason he gives us and gave them for uh, not engaging in this complaining and in, in this disputing and, uh, is in order, verse 15, that we may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation 
among whom we are to shine as lights in the world. The problem with a complaining and disputing church or a complaining and disputing uh, Christian, if it comes to mark us, isn't just that it robs us of joy in the Christian life, but the damage that it does to the reputation of God uh, in the eyes and the ears of a world that watches our lives knowing that we are uh, Christians, where someone would look at a complaining and an argumentative Christian and think, that's why I don't ever want to become a Christian, or that's why I never want to be around them. And we live in a complaining age, and we live in an argumentative age uh, today, and we have to be very careful as Christians not to fall into it, uh, complete with all of the verbal expressions uh, of it, and even social media at the end of our uh, fingertips that can go out and be just as destructive as anything that we say uh, verbally. And it isn't a bad idea to let this <clears throat> search us a little bit this morning, again in the privacy of our own uh, hearts, <clears throat> and to ask ourselves, if I ceased complaining and disputing, how much communication would be left in my life? What size of the block of my communication would be gone instantly if I ceased to do these, uh, these things uh, within, within my, my life? And to realize how dominant these things, this, these destructive things can become in our own lives and then damaging the Lord's witness and then driving people away uh, from him, and sometimes we're not even uh, aware of it. We live in a world, Paul tells us here, that is crooked and perverse. And, and as such, in terms of what he's talking about here, we could talk about it being crooked and perverse in a lot of ways, but he's talking about it in a particular way here. It is crooked and perverse in as much as it is looking for any excuse not to turn to Christ, and we are not to supply them with that excuse, and complaining and disputing supplies them with that excuse. I only met my biological father one time my whole life. My brother Gabe and I did. Uh, he was gone before we were born. We were born in Henderson, Nevada, just outside of Las Vegas. And um, he moved to Mexico City before we were born. And so I never got to meet him, and we... Uh, both became young adults and wanted to meet him at least one time in our life. And so we agreed to meet in San Diego. And so he came up with his family to San Diego. Gabe and I uh, went down with our wives down to San Diego uh, to meet him. And of course, it was a, a joy in <clears throat> so many ways and, and uh, wonderful to finally see him and, and meet him. And, uh, but Gabe and I were new Christians at that time. We were both walking with the Lord and, and still are. And, uh, of course, we wanted to share the gospel with our Father. And uh, so we shared the way of salvation and, and talked with him about these things, and he listened very politely. But then he dismissed all of it by saying, I get drunk with the priests. 
and he wiped it off the table. An excuse? Absolutely an excuse. But he should have never been willfully supplied with that excuse. And it's the same truth concerning all of our lives. We're not going to be perfect, but we can't settle down into activities and into characteristics of our life that will turn people away from ever wanting to know Christ or even to uh, explore him. Instead, he tells us in verse 16 that we're to shine as lights in this world, holding fast the word of life. And so, uh, and, and to do so, lest their conflict should undo all of the hard work that Paul had done in birthing the church and discipling the church there uh, in order that he might uh, be at the Bema seat, the reward seat of Christ one, uh, one day and rejoice in them on that day uh, as an evidence that his labor concerning the church in Philippi hadn't been in vain, that it hadn't amounted to, uh, to nothing. So Paul recognizes the danger that this kind of disputing, this kind of conflict and complaining and division is to any uh, church. He had concerns uh, for the, uh, the, the, the destructiveness of wiping a church off the map on the basis of, of this. And I think it's also very, very healthy as Paul speaks to them about his own commitment to that church in Philippi to, and the investment of his time and his effort to just stop this morning and to think about all of the hours and the hard work that others put into us ever hearing the gospel and all of the hours and the hard work that untold number of Christians have invested in each of our lives to grow into a place of some maturity in this Christian life and then to take that into account as well concerning the quality of Christian life that I choose to live. Paul closes with an autobiographical statement in verses 17 and 18. He likens himself to a drink offering being poured out on the sacrifice and the service of their faith. He's drawing on the imagery of the Old Testament. A burnt offering was the one offering that was offered to the Lord in which the offering was completely consumed on the altar and the fire. And it was because of what it represented. The person that offered an animal for a burnt offering and, and then having it completely consumed was a person who was communicating to God, I give you my entire life. I hold nothing back. And that's what a, a, a worshiper was saying to God in offering a burnt offering. Very often when the burnt offering would be being offered, they would take a, a, a hint of wine, a small amount of wine would then be poured over uh, the, the, the burnt offering. And the burnt offering was always the primary thing and the drink offering was a secondary thing. And what Paul is doing here is he's encouraging the church here in Philippi not to misunderstand his correction of them here. Uh, he is telling them, I know you're a burnt offering. Uh, I, I know you have a relationship with God. I know these things are important to you. I know the place that I played in, the, in the, the, the birthing of the church and even the development of the church. It is a comparatively small thing compared to what you have on your heart toward God. 
and, he, and he's minimizing, I mean, he's, he's correcting them, uh, them here, but he doesn't want them to, to understand that he sees them uh, as, as something lesser and that his sacrifices for them, including this letter that he writes, it represented in Paul's mind, comparatively speaking, uh, just the finishing touches on their faith. He was grateful for them, and he wanted them to know that. And he wanted them to experience the joy of that and then to join him in recognizing the joy and the gratitude that their faithful Christian lives brought to him. And so one of the keys to joy in the Christian life is understanding our part in our uh, sanctification and in our Christian maturity and then God's part and not mixing those things up and trying to do a part that I can never ever do that God provides us with the will to do and the power to do of his good pleasure. And sometimes to hear that for the first time in our Christian life, it is uh, revolutionary. Just all kinds of things begin to open up and it becomes uh, life-changing. And if you're here this morning as a Christian and you're trying to live the Christian life in your own strength as I once endeavored to do, and would like to ask God for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit not only with you, not only in you, as is the case, but now upon you as Jesus described uh, this work of the Spirit again in Acts chapter 1. You've never done that. You're in Romans 7. What I want to do, I don't do. What I don't want to do, I do. And that characterizes your life. The solution to that is the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And it is just something you ask for. And we'll be up in front immediately after the service. And we would love to pray with you for that baptism of the Holy Spirit. Or simply to be refilled with the Holy Spirit. As Paul said, be being filled with the Holy Spirit. We'd be happy to do that. And if you're here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, you look at the perfection of what God has provided for you. He's thought of everything. He gives you the glory of his word, this, this life that he offers us. And then he gives us a desire to live it and then the power to live it. The desire and the power to live the greatest life a person can live. And if you would like to uh, trust in Jesus for your salvation uh, today and enter into this life, it's all waiting for you. It's there for the asking and the receiving. And we would love to pray with you as well. If you need prayer for anything in your life this morning, we'd love to pray for you as well. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Father, we think about the marvel of this Bible, the marvel of, marvel of your word Nothing like it in the world, nothing like it in human history. Perfect in its wisdom, perfect in what it produces in a human life. And to be able to know it and to be able to build our lives decision by decision, obedience by obedience, on the firm foundation of your word. We are so grateful. And then, Lord, so that this book would not become a mocker of us as Christians, you added to it the will to do and the power to do everything that is described 
in your word, you really have thought of everything. And we thank you for that. The privilege of being able to live this life and then all that you have supplied for that to be so. Thank you, Father. And we thank you in the name of the one who made it possible. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.